And so we'll just uh, sit for a minute. So I want to um, congratulate you all. Day one, full day of practice. And um, yeah, very good. There's a reading from Bhante Gunaratana. And he says that somewhere in this process of meditation, You will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy and that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's just that uh, you haven't noticed this before. It's always been this way. Does it sound like the mind? Yeah. But may you not be perceived, uh, misconceived, misperceived. Misperceived is the word. With the impact of this practice within us. So another reading from Hafiz, Persian poet, He says, not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone in your closet for a day or two. That would do. And that means not leaving. And you better get a friend to help with a few sandwiches and you better get yourself a chamber pot. No reading, uh uh-uh. No writing poems. That would be cheating. Let's aim for the high 360-degree detox. Although the sitting alone is not recommended if you're normally sedated. But dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried in here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried in here. And so we've been sitting with ourselves, and I trust it's at times not so peachy, rosy, creamy. John Kabat-Zinn says about meditation that it's actually at times not for the faint of heart. And yet I know that uh, your own dedication to this practice and your desire to want to facilitate mindfulness to others, that you also have a sense, and we've been also talking a little bit about this, how important it is to know this practice from the inside, that it's a lived experience. We sometimes call the first day or two of a retreat uh, affectionately known as the swamp, in the sense that um, things are coming up. We're not used to sitting these long hours. We're tired and cranky and so forth. And as Mark described in this uh, Billy Collins poem this morning, just a little piece of it, he said, uh, I could feel the day offering itself to me, and I wanted nothing more to be in the moment. But which moment? Not that one, or that one, or that one, or any of those that were scuttling by, and so forth. It's important to know as a mindfulness facilitator that if you meditate, and of course those that you work with, um, you and we all will be encountering challenges when we sit and practice, and no doubt you've probably met a few today. It's very helpful to know that in the canonical literature, in the texts, there is teachings about how to work with what comes up when challenges arise in the practice, and they're known sometimes as the five hindrances. Why are they called hindrances? Because they are distractions, impediments, that which hinders steadying the mind and the heart. So I wanted to just speak a little bit about this tonight because I have a sense that that these hindrances are visiting. What are they? 
desire. Simply put, I want. Aversion, I don't want. Sleepiness, sloth and torpor, sluggishness, neither here nor there. Restlessness, crawling out of my skin. Doubt, I don't know if this meditation is going to work. It might be for others, but I don't know about me. Has anybody had any visitations today? Yeah. Sometimes we get one visitation. Sometimes we get what's called an MHA. That means a multiple hindrance attack. And there's nothing quite uncomfortable like feeling desire and aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt all at the same time. And these hindrances, they obscure our seeing clearly. Sometimes there's a metaphor or simile in the suttas about a clear lake and what obscures it. And when we're filled with the sense of I want, desiring, greed, grasping, it's like almost like red dye in the water that colors the water so you can't see through. When we're feeling a lot of aversion, hatred, anger, it's like boiling water so we can't see through. I love this description. If we're really sleepy, sloth and torpor, it's like a thick layer of algae on the top of the water, so we can't see quite through that either. Restlessness is like the strong winds hitting upon the water, creating a lot of currents and waves, difficult to see through. And doubt, all dried up, or that sense of muddiness, murkiness, not being able to see clearly. So within yourself, and of course with those that you work with, you will be encountering these hindrances, and it doesn't mean that you're a failure or a bad meditator. These are very normal, and and I think it's very important that these are normalized and validated within our practice. And it's also fair to say that it's not a huge problem as we begin to learn how to work with them. that perhaps right within these hindrances, there may be some medicine for us to distill, some ways to work with these hindrances that will bring us clear seeing. And there's another metaphor in the suttas about a poisoned tree, and the first thing you do is you cut it down. And and the second is you you have compassion for that tree, because the poor thing had to be cut down. But then you can distill some medicine from the poison and use it for healing. So Pema Chodra, she writes, and this could pertain to these hindrances and much more, but she says, generally speaking, we regard discomfort in any form as bad news. But for practitioners of meditation, people have a certain hunger to know what is true. Feelings like disappointment, embarrassment, irritation, resentment, restlessness, anger, jealousy, grasping, fear. Instead of being bad news, they're actually very clear moments that teach us where it is that we're stuck, where it is that we're holding back. So a very interesting, wonderful invitation here. One of the most helpful ways of working with these hindrances is our factor of mindfulness, our awareness, which is a wisdom factor, an awakening factor. As soon as we become aware, it's like coming up for air and we can begin to see more clearly where it is that we are. We can begin to turn into the restlessness or to the doubt, into the wanting, to the not wanting, and begin to investigate what's here. Once we become mindful, we can begin to have a choice. We can learn to respond in a more constructive way. There's a beautiful quote from Viktor Frankl that speaks about that between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space lies my freedom to choose. And so mindfulness is that space between our reactions. When we begin to become aware, oh, there's restlessness or doubt or 
whatever this is arising, we can begin to bring our awareness to work with it. This is very important. What's very helpful is to become, as I mentioned, to be aware of it, to acknowledge it, to feel it, to know it, to investigate it. So when it comes to desire, it's important for us, if we're having a desire attack, to be aware, oh, here's desire, and to really begin to investigate what's really being longed for here. How does it feel to be in a place of desire physically, mentally, emotionally? I can remember once eating some tofuti ice cream, enjoying it in the land of satiation and pleasure. And all of a sudden I noticed there was one spoonful left. And then this overwhelming sadness came over me. What am I going to do? <laughs> and I thought it was just get another bowl. But would that really satisfy my longing? And so to begin to know when the longings arising, the desirings arising, is gaining knowledge. And when we begin to see that, we can begin to work with it. Because the fleeting thing is with this desire is is that I keep on reaching out to get something to be at home, but it's fleeting. It doesn't last. It's pointing to perhaps a deeper aspect within myself, I would say, that has some deficiency, that somehow I'm not enough, and that I need to look outside for this pleasure. I'm not against pleasure, but also understanding this sense of longing that cannot be fulfilled, which is very helpful to know, to understand. Aversion is in the same way. There's a sense of pushing away reality that somehow we've determined this moment is not measuring up. It's not okay. And so how do we meet that place of hatred, aversion, anger? And of course, the first thing is to become aware of it is to gain some knowledge. Oh, here's anger. We can begin to investigate more closely what is the source within this anger, not in an an analyzing way, but feeling into the feeling, get to know the anger, the aversion. Within there may be a ruby revealing itself to you. Sometimes it's helpful to, of course, do a counteract of, let's say, loving kindness, which can be helpful with the practice, but that sense of awareness and mindfulness to investigate, to know, to begin to understand what is fueling and driving these challenges is very helpful. With sleep, sloth and torpor, again, once you awaken enough to know that you're sleepy, you're back again. And in those moments, we can perhaps be skillful, change our posture, stand up, maybe imagine that you're sitting at an edge of a cliff and it's 5,000 feet down and one small wrong move, you're a goner. I think for many of us in retreat, though, we come in tired, and for many of us, we've lost touch with our own circadian or biorhythms. And it's only until we begin to stop, we begin to become aware of the tiredness that is within us. I've had this fantasy for a number of years, that like on a week-long retreat, that instead of the zafus, we get beds for everybody. <laughs> and like maybe like lying them for like a couple of days, 20 hours a day sleep, and you know, maybe by the third or fourth day, we can wake up and begin to do the practice. I don't know if we'll ever see that happen. And there's also some causes. Of course, with sleepiness is, hello, you're tired. We've become a human doing, if you will, rather than a human being. And sometimes what may arise is there's a certain type of, I don't want to feel this, so I turn off. I go somewhere else. A few years ago, my older son was ill, and there was a a few-week period where there was a possibility that he had lymphoma. And fortunately, he didn't. But during that time, and actually the peak of it was while I was teaching a week-long meditation retreat, and uh, we were waiting. And I was actually close by, so I was in close contact with the family at that point. But I noticed that 
whenever I got done with the sitting, whenever I just wanted to go to sleep, I didn't want to feel it. I didn't want to be aware of it. And uh, it was very interesting for me to, oh, this is this turning away, this not wanting to feel something. Fortunately, he had mono, and I love mono now. Not that I would wish anyone to have mono, but I love mono in this case. And of course, another cause is just a sense of of imbalance in our day-to-day lives. So we work with our sleep, and if all else fails, sleep and be happy and wake up and begin the practice once again. Restlessness like a pacing tiger, unharnessed energy. Again, there's a sense of um, very difficult to work with, with, with the sense of restlessness. But again, if it's one, a way to work with it is to at least become aware of it, to acknowledge it, to begin to investigate it. Sometimes it might be helpful to do some more fast-paced walking practice to help harness that energy, to help build some steadiness and some concentration. Now, restlessness is also, it is a form of aversion. What, what, what's here? So it's an invitation to bring our awareness to to investigate. So, of course, a lot of these things that are driving our restlessness and so forth are the, are the sufferings in our lives. And, of course, there's doubt. I don't know if meditation is going to help me. Anybody ever have that experience? No one's raising their hand. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we have this doubt. This is also worthy of investigation, to know it, to acknowledge it, to feel it. Perhaps this is feeling of unworthiness, like, you know, I, I'm not, I don't deserve this, and so forth. And to look at the narrative, the stories that I tell myself. And to me, one of the most helpful things in working with doubt is talking with a good friend, a spiritual friend. And don't hesitate to ask every single question you have. And um, to really begin to connect, to try to make sense, to understand what's here. Also at times, just there's powerful reflections of the triple gems of awakening, the teachings of awakening. The community that supports awakening can help dispel some doubt. And so I want to just name these, as I mentioned a little go, a bit ago, because my sense is that they're in the room and that we're cooking. And this may offer some support for you um, in our practice. And of course, for those of, that are you know, interested in teaching, facilitating mindfulness, you're going to be encountering many students with these challenges. And so we're getting to know them uh, from the inside and how we work with them. For the <clears throat> remainder of this talk, I'm going to switch the subject dramatically. And I wanted to speak about <clears throat> how the Dharma informs all of these mindfulness based approaches. And so it's fair to say that um, we are in the midst of a mindfulness revolution. Even made the cover of Time magazine. Who could ever have imagined that 25 years ago? And I like to say that I really think it's pretty true to say that probably never before in the entire history of the world has there been this type of convergence of mindfulness and meditation um, that's happening in science and education and psychology and business and government. And it's really quite remarkable what's happening now. And it'll be very interesting, like 500 years from now, to look back like, wow, something happened at this time. I mean, this, this, uh, I mean it's amazing how much mindfulness exponentially is gaining interest all over the world. As I mentioned, um, there's mindfulness in science. Neuroscience was actually a particular field of neuroscience that's been created because of the meditation practices called effective neuroscience, how the mind 
affects the body. And there's been a lot of work with Richie Davison that probably many of you know from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and he's done a lot of work with the brain and neuroplasticity and so forth. Also, of course, mindfulness-based stress reduction in, in medicine and hospitals and psychology and education, business, as I mentioned, government. A few years ago, I was at an international mindfulness-based interventions conference at UMass Medical Center, and Tim Ryan, a congressman from Ohio, was giving a keynote talk, and, and I, it was like I almost had to pinch myself. This is like a U.S. congressman talking about mindfulness? And actually, probably many of you know, he's written a book called The Mindful Nation. And it's like, it's kind of amazing. Mindfulness-based approaches have found their way into many different modalities. As we know, MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which shows that after three, three relapses of depression, that this seems to be the most significant uh, treatment for relapse in depression. There's mindfulness-based childbirth and parenting, mindfulness-based relapse prevention. There's dialectical behavioral therapy that has elements of mindfulness in it, as well as ACT. Seems like every other week there's a new what we call mb coming up on the block, a mindfulness-based something this or something that. And I've had the honor in these last years um, to do a lot of traveling all over the world and training uh, quite a number of people, particularly in mindfulness-based stress reduction is kind of my area. Uh, but to meet so many different people, so many different cultures, so interested and hungry to bring more mindfulness, compassion, and heart into their country to share with their people. It's really quite extraordinary. I, I really want to tell you it's really extraordinary. We are living in very amazing times. Again, this convergence that with the science and the meditation that really hasn't happened because we haven't had the, te- the, the know-how to, to, to do this. So it's very interesting. We can get kind of lost. Oh, you're meditating and you're your amygdala is doing this and that, and I can imagine telling this to my old Burmese Buddhist monk, and he'd say, yeah, great, just go back to your breath. But we as Westerners, we like to get this information, and it is important, and it is skillful, and it points us back again and again to the breath, to the body, to our hearts. So I want to just really name that. And, and that pointing back to our hearts is coming, like, here you are, you're in retreat. Thank you so much for coming in retreat. Yeah, you know, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road. We're doing practice to deepen our understanding of this practice of mindfulness. As Mark mentioned, I believe it was yesterday, it seems like about a week ago already, that uh, John Kabat-Zinn didn't invent mindfulness. <laughs> and... It's very interesting because in the early days of MBSR, most of the people that were drawn to teaching it were meditators that had been practicing at IMS, and Spirit Rock actually hadn't even started yet, but the seeds were growing there, of course. And um, so many of the people were meditators and had an understanding of how the Dharma informs the mindfulness-based approaches. But as time's gone on, many uh, people that are entering into the stream of wanting to teach and practice mindfulness, to facilitate mindfulness, are, are, are coming from having taken other mindfulness programs and haven't had a lot of exposure to these teachings and how they inform mindfulness-based approaches. So these retreats are very, very helpful. They really serve as bridges to help us to understand how these teachings within the Dharma inform mindfulness-based approaches. I think Mark also mentioned that, um, you know, I think it's pretty fair to say that um, that John Kabat-Zinn's um, work really promoted all of these different mindfulness-based approaches in the world. And just to give you a little background, John was a very brilliant um, 
person, and he has a M, a PhD in molecular biology at MIT, and while he was at MIT, he, uh, there was a Zen priest that came to give a lecture, Philip Kaplow, who wrote The Three Pillars of Zen. And John attended that lecture, and he was like, My, huh, paying attention to your mind and your body. And he got very interested in this, and he began studying with a Korean Zen master in Cambridge, Cincinnati. And then he began to go to Insight Meditation Retreats in uh, Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts. And he was on an extended retreat a number of years ago. And there was a moment while he was at the retreat where, where there was like this, like an, an inspiration, a vision, if you will, but an, an inspiration of just appreciating and reveling in these profound teachings that has just, just made his heart just so happy and, and so important. These teachings are so important to his own life and began to reflect upon, I wonder how these could potentially be brought more into the mainstream. And from that moment, it just flooded this whole notion of a mindfulness-based stress reduction program kind of just unraveled in his awareness. And, and he said, yes, it could work in the hospital. And then he went on to fantasize, well, it could work in many hospitals. Well, it could actually spread all over the world. And actually, if you ask him today, he'll say it was kind of like a deja vu. I was telling like a few years ago, I was telling John, isn't it amazing how it's, it's all over? And she goes, well, it's kind of a deja vu. I mean, that, that's what the vision was. It is really kind of amazing. So somehow, these mindfulness-based approaches hit a chord, hit a nerve that is so, in some sense, universal that so many people are really connecting with these practices to grow in deeper wisdom and heart and to really look at uh, how do we work with the sufferings of, of life. So what did, what did John, what was he exposed to at an insight meditation retreat as we are sitting in, in one now in this mindfulness facilitators retreat? And so quite typically in the insight meditation retreats, there are the teachings of the Four Noble Truths, marks of existence, and the application to penetrate and to understand these teachings is through the practices of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Now the Four Noble Truths, and actually I actually like to call them realizations. Profound realizations. And the first great realization as the Buddha was sitting underneath the Bodhi tree was this realization that there is indeed suffering. And that's actually what you probably, many of you know the story of the Buddha is that he was a prince and he was destined to become a great king. And in his 29th year, he all of a sudden as if he woke up and realized that it's not going to last that there's no escape from aging, illness, and death. These are known as the three heavenly messengers. And the fourth heavenly messenger was that he saw someone out in the village and the town surroundings that was like a monk, that was interested in what is the meaning of life. And when he saw that monk, he knew this is what he had to do. And so I love that this story comes out of the recognition that it's not going to last. This is our human condition. I can relate to this personally. It's a personal story. I can relate to the inevitabilities of aging and illness and death. And I'll never forget when I was four years old, I had my first realization of death. And I was riding in the back seat of my parents' car going down Corey Hill Road in Brookline, Massachusetts, And I don't know why I thought of this, but what arose in my awareness was it's not going to last, that I and everyone could die at any moment. And I remember telling my mommy and daddy this, because that was a pretty striking thing to realize. I don't know how many of you remember the first time that you knew it was not going to last. It's a historic moment. So I shared my uh, realization, if you will, with my mother, that it's and father that's not going to last. And my mother turned around because my father was driving, but they both kind of looked at me very compassionately. And my mother said to me, don't worry, Bobby. I was called Bobby in those days. Don't worry, Bobby. It's not going to happen for a long, long time. 
And I could tell by the sound of the voice, even at four years old, that they were trying to be nice to me, but I also knew they weren't telling me the truth. <laughs> I didn't want to be a wise guy on this, but I didn't even challenge them, but I knew that was not the truth. And unfortunately to say, by the time I was nine, I lost my younger brother from an illness, my best friend who lived across the street, and my grandpa who lived downstairs. That's another whole long story, but it was those powerful experiences in my life that really reinforced it's not going to last. And ultimately, after many years of confusion and delusion, brought me into this practice. So these, so the first realization was this realization that it's not going to last, that this suffering, your dissatisfactoriness, anguish, John Kabat-Zinn used the word stress. That was the language of our times. And when you go to a first class in the MBSR class, the very first class is the teaching of the first noble truth. Because we go around the circle, we do a little meditative reflection, and we reflect upon what brings you here. What really brings you here? What really, really brings you here? Peeling off the layers. And when we go around the circle, there is the noble realization, the noble truth of suffering. I'm here because I have cancer. I'm here because I'm going through a divorce. I'm here because I can't sleep at night. I'm here because of this and that. And so we really get that sense of, of, of suffering. That's what brings us here. Second noble truth looks at causes. Actually, four. The first that actually fuels the other three. And the first is unawareness. No mindfulness. Ignorance. Not seeing clearly. And from that place of not seeing clearly gives rise to these causes. There's actually a very beautiful, um, if I can find it here, rendering of this. This is from Achan Amaro. He says, this is the noble truth of the cause of suffering and this craving that is compelling and intoxicating, which gives us birth into things again and again, ever seeking delight now here and now there. It's namely, so this is the first one, namely the craving for sensual delight, the second, the craving to be something, and the craving to feel nothing. And when we look at this and what comes to the stress reduction programs, these causes, we see them in many different ways. And, of course, the practice in mindfulness is to begin to awaken, to begin to understand, to see what's fueling and driving these causes that are creating more suffering and anguish. When I read Full Catastrophe Living, I recognized that these teachings of suffering and its causes were within uh, this book. Yet it was written in contemporary language and that it was a recontextualization, which is very important to say rather than a decontextualization, but a recontextualization of these teachings of suffering, its causes. And the last two realizations is that this away to lessen, to eradicate this suffering, and the last is the Noble Eightfold Path, to live a life with integrity that helps to steady the mind and the heart, that supports greater wisdom and insight to grow. So as I mentioned, many people throughout this world are very hungry to want to learn these practices of mindfulness and to share it with people, to their people. And I trust that um, you also share this love, this love of awareness, this love of being present, this love of getting deeper understanding into your own heart. Otherwise, why would you be here? (laughs) Why would you put up with all of this? 
I want to read something that um, John Kabat-Zinn wrote about MBSR. He says, from the very beginning, there was for me one, I'll start again, Uh, from the very beginning, there was for me one primary and compelling reason for attempting to bring mindfulness into the mainstream of society, and that was to relieve suffering and to catalyze greater compassion and wisdom in our lives and in our culture. says, the intention and the approach behind MBSR was never meant to exploit, fragment, or decontextualize the Dharma, but rather to recontextualize it within the frameworks of science, medicine, and healthcare. So it would be useful to diverse people who could not enter it through the Dharma door. MBSR and all mindfulness-based approaches are founded upon the principle of primum non suri, which means to do no harm. That is the Hippocratic Oath. And such principles are the foundation within the context of MBSR, whether it is offered in a hospital setting or elsewhere. He imagined that there's the possibility for this to become a global renaissance. And I know that's kind of a romantic term, but I I will say that there is something globally that is happening in bringing more mindfulness into the world. And it gives me hope. And I don't want to be naive. There's a lot of work ahead. So as I mentioned, at a typical insight meditation retreat, one is exposed to these teachings of the Four Noble Truths of suffering, its causes, that there's a way out of suffering through this Noble Eightfold Path. And also exposed to these teachings of the marks of existence. Suffering, dukkha, impermanence, nietzsche, and the egoless or the ownerless nature of things, anatta. And John Kabat-Zinn has a, in his New York colloquial sayings, his own definition of the three marks. For suffering, he says, shit happens. For impermanence, says things change. And for the ownerless nature of things, he says, don't take it so personally. This challenges us at times, this not taking it personally. There's a beautiful little quote from Lewis Carroll in the Alice in Wonderland. The caterpillar and Alice look at each other for some time in silence. And at last, the caterpillar took the hookah out of its mouth and addressed her and a languid, sleepy voice. Who are you? said the caterpillar. This was not encouraging for an opening of a conversation. Alice replied rather shyly, I, I, I hardly know, sir, just at present. At least I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have changed several times since then. What, what do you mean by that? said the caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. And she says, I can't explain myself. I'm afraid, sir, said Alice, because I'm not myself, you see. Rick Hansen in The Buddha's Brain speaks about the sense of self, and he says, from a neurological standpoint, the everyday feeling of being a unified self is an utter illusion. The apparently coherent and solid I is actually built from many subsystems in many further subsystems over the course of development with no fixed center. And the fundamental sense that there is a subject of experience is a fabrication from a myriad of desperate moments of subjectivity. 
Who am I? Perhaps what we see, though, in MBSR is that maybe we begin to discover that the limited definition of how I've defined who it is that I am begins to lessen, which is a very important piece. A friend of mine growing up, he had a very horrible nickname. He was called King Minus, everything you touch breaks. So you know the story of King Midas, everything you touch turns to gold. Well, he was told, King Minus, everything you touch breaks, because he was very tall and clumsy and he'd be knocking things over. And if you begin to believe in that story of who it is that you are, it can be a very painful life. Fortunately, there's a happy ending in the sense that he became much more aware of these stories through the practices of mindfulness, these narratives, these stories of how we define who we think we are, and in becoming aware of these limited definitions, he could become greater than this King Minus. This is the task before us, that these limited definitions are sometimes how we describe ourselves, define ourselves, the stories, and in mindfulness approaches, we begin to recognize these stories and begin to potentially become more free of them. So I just want to extrapolate, see a lot of these correlations coming from these teachings within the Dharma. In mindfulness-based approaches, particularly in mindfulness-based stress reduction, we find the four foundations of mindfulness embedded within the curriculum. There's the awareness of, of the body, of the, with the different bringing mindfulness into our different day-to-day activities. There's the awareness of breathing, mindful breathing, the body scan practice, walking meditation, loving-kindness meditation, So many of these practices that we draw from in mindfulness-based approaches come from the foundations of mindfulness, the foundation of the body, the foundation, second foundation of the feeling tones, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, giving rise to very gut-feeling emotions, third foundation, mind states, the fourth foundation, the dharmas, these very important teachings held within the five hindrances, how to work with the hindrances and factors of awakening and and pointing to teachings that liberate the heart. So within MBSR, as I mentioned, um, class one, the first noble truth comes around with what brings us here. And the second noble truth, if you will, or found in classes two through four in the sense that we're looking at perception and how we see things. We're doing homework assignments, investigating pleasant, unpleasant feeling tones of, of events in our lives and our reactivity. And of course, we begin to get to really begin to look at stress reactivity and what's the undercurrents of what's fueling and driving this reactivity are these unawareness, these old habitual patterns. Class number five is the pointing towards the third great realization that, that, there's, that when we begin to see these reactive patterns, we can begin to choose and respond in ways that are much more constructive. It's typified by a teaching poem called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Patricia Nelson, where she says in chapter one, I'm walking down the street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk and I fall in and I'm helpless. And it takes a long time, but I finally get out. In chapter two, I'm walking down that same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in again. I see where I am. It's my fault. I get out quickly. In chapter three, I'm walking down that same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk, and I fall in again. It's a habit, you know. This is kind of what I do. (laughs) Many of us can live in chapter three for a long, long time. So this is the old patterns of reactivity, replaying themselves, fueled by unawareness. But then we begin to become aware. Again, that beautiful quote from Viktor Frankl, between the stimulus and the response is a space, and in that space lies my freedom. When we become aware, we can begin to choose a more constructive response. When I become aware that some of these patterns of my grasping, my aversion, my unawareness are perpetuating my suffering and my pain, I'm choosing other ways 
to live, to be with what's here. We really can say that actually, particularly with MBSR, but many of the mindfulness-based approaches, that, that it's actually just a teaching of the Eightfold Path, how to live our lives. I can't tell you how many people that I've worked with that recognize as you bring more awareness into your life, when you recognize that you're living out of integrity, not an ethical life, and you begin to experience the suffering that comes through living out of integrity, you learn firsthand the importance of living with integrity. And you begin to understand that as you live with integrity, you become more settled, you become more steady. And you begin to understand as the steadiness grows, those are the seeds through this ethical living, steadying the mind and the heart, that we can get deeper insight, deeper wisdom to help us to live a more freer life, potentially um, pointing to possibilities we have yet not even imagined. Sometimes at the end of the mindfulness classes, people are almost, it's akin to like sitting or standing on the tip of an iceberg of the potential for human freedom, that this awareness can go a long ways towards deeper and deeper freedom. You begin to become free of your story. And I love sometimes that the metaphor that they speak about that the Buddha experienced the unconditioned. And the unconditioned is pointing to if there's an unconditioned, that there's a conditioned. And breaking free of the conditioning is the possibility when we practice and deepen. Breaking free of our stories. So I think this is quite a lot. <laughs> so I know that I've given a very large canvas, broad stroke. And, um, and this is, this is a, a learning and a practice of a lifetime. But I want to at least um, talk with you about this broad stroke that um, you can deepen and practice with. And, and in saying all this, I'm not saying that you have to sign up and be a Buddhist. But we're practicing awareness to liberate the heart and the mind, and the teachings within here are vast, liberative. And so may we begin to learn these practices from the inside, within our own hearts. So maybe we'll just end with a very short meditation. This was a practice that um, my teacher, his name was uh, Tungpu Lucero, was a Burmese monk. And he often would um, talk about this particular very simple practice. This would be a very good practice to die with, but also a very good practice to experience momentarily what it feels like to experience more freedom. And so just coming to the breath in and the breath out. And as you breathe in and out, just for these few breaths, just allowing yourself to experience that there's an absence of any type of desire, greed, wanting it to be different, that you actually, with these breaths in and out, you are experiencing some contentment just as the way things are. And as we breathe in and out, the next few breaths, Feeling what it's like that in these few breaths there's no aversion, no anger, no hatred, no pushing away. That there's a sense of friendliness with the way it is, a sense of befriending, a sense of loving kindness, with the absence of hatred.
and breathing in and breathing out the next few breaths. And just experiencing the clarity of the knowing of the breath in and the breath out. There's no unawareness here, no ignorance, no delusion. Clarity. The knowing of the breath in and the breath out. So breathing in and breathing out, the absence of this wanting, this greed, if you will, or desire, this contentment. And the breathing in and out with the absence of hatred, anger, this feelings of friendliness, loving kindness. And breathing in and breathing out with the absence of ignorance, not seeing clearly this total clarity, the awareness of the breath in and the breath out. These are breaths and moments of freedom, contentment, friendliness, clarity. So may all beings be at ease. May all beings discover the gateways into their hearts, experiencing more contentment, friendliness and loving kindness and clarity of heart and mind. May all beings dwell with peace. So thank you very much, and uh, we'll continue with some walking practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.